to find your way in your Bible to John chapter 17. We're almost at the end of this. It is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus, which surely by well, by now you know. Jesus praying for His disciples. Jesus praying for us on the night before He is betrayed. We pick up in verse 20. So John 17, verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may be one just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You've sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and You in Me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. This, Lord, is Your Word. Now enliven it by Your Spirit to penetrate our hearts and minds and to draw us to Yourself for Christ's sake. Amen. And so if I ask you where in Scripture you are specifically mentioned by Jesus... What would you say? Would you think of this verse? Look at it again. He says, I'm not asking only for these disciples standing here with me right now. That's what that means. But for all those who believe in me through their word. Have you believed, dear one? Are you trusting in Jesus through the word of the gospel which he sent to you? Through these men. Well, then you are one of those for whom Christ prayed that night. Now think of that. As Jesus turned to face the cross, you and I were specifically on His mind. R.C. Sproul has said this. He said, in a very real sense, we as believers were in the mind of Jesus that night as He prayed this prayer of intercession. Uh, William Hendrickson says... The eye of Jesus scans the centuries and presses to His loving heart all His true followers as if they had all been saved in that very moment. This is a tender scene as Jesus, our great High Priest, on the eve of His sacrifice, lifts us up to the Father in prayer. So what will He ask? What is on His great heart as He considers us and all that is to come in the days of head? That's what we want to look at here this morning. This, this prayer of Jesus for you and me as His living church through history. And the first thing we need to say is that, that Jesus prays for us. Jesus prays for us that we would truly be united together in Him. Look again at verse 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in Us. First, notice the power that brings this unity to us. He says that we are to be brought together in Him through His word those who will believe in Me through their Word. 
And here, of course, he means that, that gospel word that he is about to send out. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10 tells us. That gospel word that goes out in power through the mouths of men and women uh, to, to bring people from every nation, tribe and tongue and unite them together as one holy people living in obedience to Christ. I mean, And it is only the gospel that has power to do that. Uh, to take us with all of our differences and deficiencies and make us truly one in Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to these two at war with each other. It is able to save them and bring them together. The gospel has power to save. The gospel has power to unite. And it is that uniting power of the gospel that Jesus has focused on here at the end of His prayer. Listen to it again. Verse 20, I don't ask only for these who are standing here with me, but for all those who will believe in Me through their Word. Why is He praying? That they may be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in Us. So what is the focus of Jesus' prayer here? He says the focus is on this God-given, heaven-sent unity. Jesus The focus of Jesus' prayer is that we, His people, His disciples, would have a unity that is patterned after and dependent on the unity Christ Himself has with the Father. Now, let's look at that first. Notice any real unity we have is dependent, it hangs on the unity that the Son has with the Father. Uh, The key statement here is... Uh, The key statement here is that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in them that they also may be in us. And so otherwise, our unity is anchored to that unity that already exists between the Father and the Son in eternity. As the Father and the Son are united in eternal bonds of love and joy, of purpose and intimacy of relationship so also we are to be joined together with them in these same bonds of love and joy, purpose and intimacy. In other words, this is not a unity we have to go out and try to create. This is a unity we step into as we step into Christ by faith. So that as I draw near to Christ by faith, surrendering all to Him, and you draw near to Christ by faith, surrendering all to Him, we find ourselves drawn together in Him and begin to surrendering all for the sake of one another in Him. And so our unity is dependent upon their unity. And get this, God Himself is the living center of that unity. And the more I am drawn to Him, and the more you are drawn to Him, the more we then must be drawn to one another. You see that? But then notice something else. Notice the quality or the nature of this unity He's talking about. Notice that it is a unity that is patterned after the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son. 
Mutual indwelling. And that's about a $40 theological term. But it's an important one. And it's actually one we've seen before. Uh, perhaps you remember, if you turn back to John 14, verse 9 to 11, the very beginning of this uh, upper room uh, discourse Jesus has with His disciples, we're told, chapter 14, uh, verse 9, right after uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us, Jesus answers and says, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, for the Father who dwells in me does His work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, do you hear that, that language of mutual indwelling? I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Here we see that within the Trinity... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling eternally together, one God in three persons. Within the Trinity, the Father and the Son along with the Spirit are so tightly bound together, so wrapped up in one another in unity, in love, in mutual devotion and respect and intimacy of fellowship that you really cannot drive a wedge between them. You cannot find a place where the Father is of one mind and the Son is of another you will not find uh, the Son pulling in one direction and the Father over here pulling in another. They're not at odds with each other. They're not in competition against each other. One is never jealous or embittered toward the other. They exist in a perfect, never-ending relationship of mutual love and devotion, one God in three persons. And yet, at the same time, they are not all the same person. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Neither of them is the Spirit. So it's not a matter of simple bland uniformity. That there is indeed a diversity within the Trinity. A Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And yet these diverse persons are absolutely united in one being. We're not quite like that. That's different. But this is what we are like to be united in the purpose and intimacy and fellowship of that one being. And so Jesus says in this prayer, it is this kind of unity I'm praying for, Father, that the kind of unity that is of a oneness of devotion and purpose and intimacy of fellowship that reflects what you and I have. Father, I'm asking you to give that to my disciples, my church, my people, my beloved through the ages. Grant them this kind of depth of unity. Do you see that in the prayer of Jesus? Hear it again, verse 21. I'm praying that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they also may be in us so the world can see it. This is a supernatural thing He's calling us to. That we would enter into the kind of mutual love and trust and intimacy of fellowship that we see modeled within the loving embrace of the Trinity. Okay, that, that's great, but how? I, I mean, the church is made up of people and people sin and people will betray you and gossip about you and hurt you and even when they haven't done those things, they, that they can fail you. So how on earth do we approach this kind of radical unity? 
Well, again, we, we can't just create this out of thin air. But here's the thing. We don't have to. Because it is a supernatural reality that God has created for us in Christ and given to us in Christ as we draw near to Him. Again, notice what he says in verse 21. You've got to just keep reading these verses and that they, they, my disciples, may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. In us. Now, that's key. It's this being in us. Me and the Father through the Son and you and the Father through the Son. That's what binds us together as one. All eyes fixed on Him. Right? So, if the deepest truth about you is that you are in Christ and are daily drawing near to Christ and becoming more and more like Christ, and the deepest truth about me is that I am in Christ and daily drawing near to Christ and becoming more like Christ, and we then meet together in that intimate place of knowing and serving Christ, boy, we're going to have a unity that is supernatural. That's why the Bible doesn't command us to create this unity by joining this organization or signing that statement. What it commands us to do is live in this unity Christ has created for us by living in Him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Maintain, hold on to what already exists, because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So that we can say, everybody who belongs to Jesus belongs to everybody who belongs to Jesus. Okay, so why does this matter? Why is this just not a theology class and we can sign our names and go home? Well, why is this so important that Jesus takes the time to pray for it here in this prayer? Well, again, look at the very end of that verse. At the end of verse 21, after saying that we are in them, we are in them, so that, here's the reason, that the world may believe that you sent me. The reason Jesus prays for our unity is so that the world might believe He really is who He claims to be by looking in on us. Think about it. We live in a world that is naturally divided, hostile, alienated from one another. Right? Nation against nation, brother against brother, liberal versus conservative, a Democrat against Republican, black versus white. Disunity is the common status of mankind in sin. Uh, Titus 3 verse 3 says it well, we pass our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. You don't believe that? Take 10 minutes on Twitter. Read those streams, right? Or maybe don't. Listen to Aaron's message last week. See, in a world like this, in a world so divided, so at odds, a genuine Christ-centered unity will be one of our most effective apologetics. I mean, imagine if they could see us loving one another and truly caring for one another despite our human differences. Imagine if they could look at the church and see 2 Corinthians 5.19 literally being fulfilled 
In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Or Ephesians 2.14, For Christ Himself is our peace, and He has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, in His flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. I mean, imagine. And unfortunately, I have to say, imagine... Because the church through history has not always been good at manifesting this. Right? And I say that to our shame. We can be every bit as divisive and tribal as the world around us. Right? Maybe more so. I mean, is it really any coincidence that as the world has become so divided and split, Christian uh, publicly have become just as divided and split? But you know what? I really can't do anything about all that going on out there. So I'm just not going to waste any time this morning griping about what Christians do on the Internet. You've heard enough of that. I have no influence with what's going on out there. Not really. And so I want us to think about what is going on in here. What kind of apologetic do we here at Rockport present to the world as they turn their eyes on us? Do they see the evidence of a real supernatural unity centered on Christ when they look in at you and me? And these words here indicate that this is something that's meant to be seen. That this is something that is meant to be obvious and public. That that those who come among us or brush up against us ought to be able to experience in living color something of this genuine Christ-centered unity that God gives to His true people. Do they? Do our kids see it? You know, I wonder about these little ones growing up. My 31 years here, we've always had lots of little ones. Some of you were those little ones and you've grown up and that's wonderful, but 20, 30 years from now, what will these little ones today remember as they look back on their time here with us? Will they remember a true Christ-centered joy of a people united by faith in Christ? Will they remember displays of real sacrificial love and service toward one another? Or will they look back and remember backbiting and gossip, anger and frustration, impatience with one another, disrespect toward one another? And you see, whatever it is they're going to look back and remember, we're all contributing to that now. And for many of these children, I mean, forget about the world outside just for a second. For many of these children, the believability of the gospel will hang on what they see taking place in us. Right? And how many adult, how many adults do you know today whose view of Christ and the church was poisoned by a toxic congregation? I know pastors, children, who will not step into a church because of the way they saw their parent, their father and others treated. So we know that exists. The question for us is Rockport lets you and me continue to strive to make sure that it doesn't exist here and that we are in fact striving to manifest this reality of a genuine Christ-like unity that is solidly centered on Christ and the Gospel. Which brings us to the second thing. Christ prayed for us that His glory among us 
would bind us together in Him. Look at verse 22. This is pretty cool. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. The glory, he says, this is going to be energy driving this unity. Because at the heart of Christian unity, there stands this shared experience of Christ's glory. Glory in the Bible was often uh, used to refer to that dazzling presence of God as He came and dwelt among His people. And so the, the, the picture here is of all of us standing transfixed, looking with joy into the dazzling, bright, beautiful face of our Savior so, so, so that by this constant looking at Him, we are being united together in Him. Second uh, Corinthians 3 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, that is a beautiful picture of what the church of Christ is meant to be. Okay, so what does it mean in practical terms? Well, in the context of John's Gospel, the glory here often refers to a direct and personal experience of God. It is God making Himself known to you in a real and personal way. It is God showing you who He really is. Now, before the coming of Christ, only Christ Himself had the fullness of that experience of the glory. Others caught glimpses of it, like Isaiah, but only Christ Himself, the Son, had it in its fullness. But when Christ came down to earth... He came to bring something of that glorious presence of God down to us. I mean, look what he says. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Meaning what? Well, meaning that in Christ we begin to see this glory. In Christ we enter into a direct and personal knowledge of God. This is why Christ came. John 1 verse 14. The Word, that's Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Or likewise, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So in Christ, as we come near by faith, we begin to see and know God for who He really is. And by receiving this glorious view of God through Christ, by seeing it and rejoicing in it and delighting in Him, we begin to share something of that same delight the Father has in the Son and the Son has in the Father. It begins to get in between us. And so it is in beholding His glory together, delighting in it, loving it, that we are drawn together. Right? Like moths drawn to a porch light. We each are drawn out of our darkness into His marvelous light. And there in that light, we begin to see each other and take delight in one another because of the delight each of us has found in Him. Do you see what I'm saying? Is any of this... Hello? Yes? Is that connecting? Okay. Well, let me give you an example. Maybe it's a poor example, but but I think it works. I love my wife for who she is. I enjoy spending time with her. I like who she is. 
But something really unexpected happened when we became grandparents. I found that I really loved watching her love them. And the more I see her loving them and delighting in them, the more I find myself loving her and delighting in her. In other words, our mutual delight in them increases my delight in her. I think you grandparents understand. Well, in the same way, the more I see your delight in and love for Christ, the more I am drawn to delight in you. The more we gaze together into the glory of Christ as we see Him in His Word, the more we, we, we see His beauty together as we draw near in worship, the more we find His help together in times of prayer, the more our hearts are drawn to one another. The more of the light of His love I see reflected off your face, the more I take delight in your presence for reflecting that face. I mean, that's, that's the unity that we share. That's the unity that already exists in heaven, but now the closer we draw near to that glory, the more we see it in one another. Does that make sense? What the eye of faith sees of Christ, the heart of faith takes delight in. And so the more I delight in the glory of God I see in the face of Christ, and the more you delight in the glory of God you see in the face of Christ, the more we will be drawn together to share in that light that we find bouncing off one another's faces. So so how do we do that? How How do we enhance this unity so that it becomes a real and living experience at Rockport? I'll just mention these three things and you can work them out. First... It begins with our mutual submission to Christ in His Word. Right? His truth reigning in my heart and, and in your heart will unite our hearts. Second, it builds and brightens as we continue gazing at the beauty of His glory in a heart-surrendering worship and glad obedience. So, the Word, worship. Third, it expands as we behold His presence in one another and grow to love each other even more for loving Him. Fellowship. As more and more we set aside the irrelevant, temporary nonsense of this world to take hold of the eternal, everlasting joys of the world to come. That brings us into this thing. Why does it all matter? Why does it matter at all? Well, it matters because when the world sees this unity and living color alive in us, they will be more likely to believe what we then have to say about Him. Or the third point, Christ prayed for us that our genuine unity would become a persuasive witness to the world. That's verse 23. I and them and you and me, so there's the kind of unity we're talking about, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So he prays again what he pretty much just prayed back in verse 21, that that, that we would have a real unity in Him that enables others to see Him in us. But he gives a little more detail, so let's look at the detail. What kind of unity are we talking about? Well, notice, he says it is a complete or perfect unity. Unity. Our old friend Tetelestai is at the root of that word. Not, not, not just a feeling of unity, not just a, a sense of unity, not, not just a putting up with each other for an hour on Sunday, but a real and living unity. 
literally what he says is that they may be perfected in oneness. Well, meaning what? Well, I'm pretty sure Jesus has eternity in view here. That day when our unity in Him and one another will finally be perfected. That day is coming, by the way. There will be a day when all these petty differences and silly divisions will be gone forever. I remember standing right here somewhere with a brother who uh, uh, we, I'd come to have all, uh, differences with. This is a number of years ago. Some of you who are here in 99-2000 uh, could put it together. And um, this brother and I, we'd, we'd spent a lot of time together. We were friends. We had been out witnessing together. And we became such opposite views, especially having to do with the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty. And yet, I knew this brother loved the Lord. And I knew he'd loved me. And it was, it, it, was, it was sad to see this division. I finally looked at him and said, Brother, I hope we can come to some unity here based on the Word. But you know what? The day is coming when all our foolishness will be swept aside and we will see. And we will be drawn together. By the way, I think it's because he's going to see the truth, but that's another issue. <laughs> In fact, that brother has passed into glory, so I think he already has. But that day is coming, and, and on that wonderful day, we will know as we are fully known, and we will embrace each other as we have been embraced in Christ. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What a day that will be. That's where we're headed. Perfect unity is coming. But we're not there yet. So what do we do for now? Do we just look at that and say, oh well, I guess it'll come when it comes? No. We strive now to experience as much of that coming unity as possible while we look toward its final fulfillment. In fact, it's a lot like sanctification. In fact, it's part of sanctification. (laughs) One day we will all know perfect holiness. What a day that will be. No more sin. No more filthiness. No more failures. We'll be just like Jesus in holiness and we will see Him as He is. We're not there yet. I'm sure not. So what do we do? Do we just give up and say, oh well, it'll come. Que No. Mike did a good job telling us at family camp, we will strive by grace to be what Christ is making of us. We will seek to grow in holiness daily through the means of grace He's given us, His Word and worship, mutual encouragement and instruction, uh, setting aside sin and putting on Christ, all the tools He's given us. And we do the same thing now as far as unity is concerned. We know it's out there. We know it's coming. And so we strive to grow into it every day using every tool He has given us, His Word and worship. Fixing our eyes together on Christ daily. Encouraging and instructing one another. Putting off sin and putting on Christ. Praying for this unity. Do you pray for it? Repenting where we fail at it. Putting our eyes back on Jesus as we seek to walk with Him and one another. Of course, a unity focused in the Word, not jettisoning central issues of the Word. It would be a whole other sermon, but unity centered on the Gospel of Christ itself. Okay, why? Why does it matter? 
Well, it matters because he comes again to this. Our genuine Christian unity makes a difference in how the world receives our witness. Two reasons it does that, he says in verse 23. Very quickly, first, he tells us, our genuine unity in Christ provides an undeniable testimony that Jesus really is who He claims to be. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Jesus wants the world to know. And His plan is that they would know by what they hear, the Gospel, and see this unity in us. This is why Christ-centered unity matters. The, the, the unity itself is not the main thing. Our witness is the main thing. And he says it twice in this passage. Did you notice it? Notice the so that's in this passage. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. Christ wants this fractured world to be able to see His power to put the pieces back together when they look in on us. So our genuine Christ-centered unity is a living testimony to the believability of the Gospel. John 13.35 By this all people will know that you're My disciples if you have love for one another. At the same time, Christ denying divisions and failure to love therefore take away from the credibility of the Gospel. They don't take away from its truth, but they take away from its credibility. They obscure the truth about Christ. By failing to pursue genuine unity, we blunt the undeniable truth of the Gospel. But when we live it out, when our lives show what Christ can do in bringing people like us together His glory is seen. Second, he says, our genuine Christ-centered unity is a living confirmation of how much He loves us. Look at verse 23 again. He says, that they may be perfectly one so that, first, the world may know that You sent Me, and second, that You loved them, meaning us, the disciples, even as You loved Me. Church, never forget, love is at the very heart of this Gospel. God loved us and sent His Son for us. Because He loves His children, His grace brings us together in one family where we can be loved and learn to share in that love He's given with one another. I mean, do you realize, Christian, do you realize, you who profess faith in Christ, you who know, do you realize just how deeply you are loved in Christ? Look at it again, right at the end of verse 23 so that they may know that you loved them even as you loved Me. That you love them even as you love Me. Can you take that in? Can you wrap your mind around that? This is amazing. Nobody's ever loved you like Jesus. And so in this amazing passage, not only does Jesus pray for you here, He declares the Father's love for you here. John 6.27, the Father Himself loves you. And it is a love that He longs to put on display for the world to be able to see and know what a great Savior He is. 
When they look in and see sinners like us drawn together in love, truly knowing and caring for one another because of Him, well, they've got to think, what a great God He must be. What a strong Savior to bring such people together. And think of the original disciples. Over here, we got exhibit A. That would be Matthew the tax collector. Over here, we have exhibit B. That would be Simon the zealot. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you know zealots existed to kill tax collectors. Tax collectors despised the zealots. And yet here they are in one family. Ha! <laughs> 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and therefore whoever loves like this has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love like this, he means, does not know God because God is love. When we live together in Christ-centered unity, the love that God has for us is put on display in our love for one another. 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That love becomes a key part of our undeniable witness to who Christ is and His mighty power to save. As Christians were being persecuted severely in the 2nd and 3rd century, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, wrote his great defense of the faith called the Apology. Remember, in Greek, Apology doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry, it means a defense. So his defense of the Gospel... And there in that defense of the gospel, he reminded his opponents of something they had seen with their own eyes, even as they were persecuting the church. Something they simply could not deny. That these Christians truly did love one another. That these Christians were deeply devoted to one another because of what Christ had done. And in fact, it was often said, Behold how they love one another. How devoted they are to each other because of Christ. Can you imagine the impact on our world? If they saw that regularly when they looked our way, <laughs> they came among us and said, man, look, look how these people love each other. Look how they stick together no matter what. Look how forgiving they are of one another. Look how deep their commitment is to Christ and therefore through Christ to one another. I mean, I don't understand it. I think their views are crazy. I think they're nuts for believing that a dead Savior got up alive. I don't believe it at all. But I can't deny that there is something supernatural at work in there. Holding these people together, giving them the kind of love and support for one another I didn't even think was possible in this world. But oh listen, it is possible. This is what Christ gives us as we surrender to Him. By faith in the Gospel, by the truth of His Word, this is what He forges. And so it requires self-denial. I can't be about me. And you can't be about you. We've got to be about Him. I can't be a great defender of my own opinions. I've got to be a great defender of His truth. I can't just say it's going to be my way or the highway. It's got to be Christ's way or no way. But that's what He gives us. So, what must change in you for this to be true? It's not my call. Where do you need to repent of attitudes you've held on to toward a brother or sister? Where do you need to repent of bitterness? Or anger, perhaps? Resentment? Gossip? A judgmental spirit? A refusal to love? 
and forgive. Wherever that is, take it to Christ. Confess it to Him. Seek it from Him. There's reconciliation that needs to be made toward a brother or sister because of of, of an unrighteous attitude. Go make it. And you, to whom it is made, receive it. This is what Christ does. Could Could it be that He needs to do some of these things among us? Could it be that you've never actually come to Christ yourself? You're... You're still trying to manufacture life for yourself on your own terms. But now you see that there's no way to do that. You see that you need Him. You feel the weight of your own sin and alienation from God. You, you couldn't find God with a thousand searchlights. He just doesn't even seem to be anywhere because your sins have hidden His face from you. Christ came to deal with your sins. He came to take them away. So come to Him by faith. Repent of your sins and believe that Christ died to pay the price of sin, rose again on the third day to to vanquish all our wickedness and to grant us His righteousness as a gift. Let Him bring you then not only to Himself, but to new life and fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Father, it is our desire that You would do this work among us. We can't manufacture this any more than we can manufacture our own salvation. But Father, if we will draw near to Christ, we will believe the reconciling promise of His Gospel and first first be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ by faith. And then turn and find that we are being reconciled to one another on the same basis. You will forge a deep unity among us. Lord, I'm grateful that we have tasted something of that unity. It's no tribute to who we are. It's everything about who You are. I'm grateful that we have seen that the more we draw near to You according to Your Word, the more we have tasted this, but we know that we have not yet reached that place of perfected unity, perfected oneness. It's coming. Help us to strive for it. Draw us to Yourself. Unite us together as one church for the cause of Your Gospel so that others may see more of You through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.